Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare, Maintain Excellence. 
going in turn one, I looked up in the mirror at Kale, and I said, hmm, he ain't coming under me. Now, he can have all the room in the world outside of me, but he's not going to get under me. I ran over to him, and I grabbed him by the arm. I spun him around. I said, you want to fight? Yes, OB. I'm the guy you need to be fighting with. The good Lord looked out for us twice that day, once in the wreck, and once that he didn't touch me because I'd have killed him. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by QWare. Steve, did you have a good time in Boston? A great time in Boston. <laughs> a great town. I'm going to tell you something about Boston. You go down to uh, the harbor area, and if you like Irish pubs, <laughs> that's the place to go. You've never been in an Irish pub in your life. What are you talking about, man? <laughs> Careful. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I should offer you congratulations. Sunday was your birthday, and then you and Margaret had an anniversary. What day? October 3rd, up in Boston. Okay. And, uh, we just had a fabulous time in that city, and the hotel treated us so well. When they found out that it was our 49th anniversary, the first question we were asked was, well, did you get married as teenagers? <laughs> now, see, I could believe that of Margaret. I was going to say, was Margaret 10 when you married about. her? <laughs> that's who I'm talking about. Steve, this week we have the third and final segment of the interview that I did with Donnie Allison. And this week, Steve, he talks about the 1979 Daytona 500. Oh, this is going to be good. Well, you know, I thought it was kind of funny when he said that he did not block Kale. He said, I did not block. We didn't block in those days. It just didn't happen. Well, it sure looked like <laughs> But then he also said, when he came off turn two, he said, there is no way that Kale's going to get under me. Now, he can go to the outside. He can have all the track he wants on the outside, but he's not getting under me. So I didn't exactly know how to point that out to Donnie. <laughs> and I felt like it would be the better part of discretion if I didn't point that out to him. <laughs> well, you know, that's the question. If you don't want the driver to go to the inside of you, what do you do? You move down before he gets there alongside you. Well, I've always that's called a block. I've always thought that Donnie was taking Kale to the infield for a hot dog at the <laughs> hot dog stand or something. But Donnie said that he did not, under any circumstances, feel that he blocked Kale. Well, that's his story, and he's sticking with it. He did obviously talk about the fight that came afterwards, and also Rockingham the oh, next yeah. week. So that was a pretty big incident, too. Absolutely. Those two got into it again at Rockingham, and this time... The drivers in the race with them, particularly Richard and Daryl, didn't like it at all. Well, it was just a racing incident. It was just a. It was just racing. It was just. Ra <laughs> Others did not agree. <laughs> and Steve, in our second segment, we're going to go back to the May fifteenth, nineteen ninety seven issue of Winston Cup scene. Mark Martin won a caution-free race at Talladega. Caution-free at Talladega. Caution-free at Talladega. Unbelievable. And that meant that his average speed was pushed to more than 188 miles an hour for the entire race. Yeah. Isn't that a record? It is for a NASCAR event. Right. And Steve, in this issue, the letters to the editor section, I picked this issue out completely at random because the race at Talladega is coming up this weekend 
And so I wanted to pick a Talladega issue. So I picked this one just basically at random and I started thumbing through it. And the letters to the editor section <laughs> was basically dedicated to yours truly. <laughs> what did you do? Well, I had written a column after the spring Bristol race that year. Jeff Gordon had gotten into Rusty Wallace on the last lap there in turns three and four, pushed him out of the way, went on to win the race. And I wrote a column saying, good for Jeff. That's what you ought to do at Bristol. That's what is meant to happen All right. at Bristol. And uh, people came out of the woodworks on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, some of the letters that I got out of that were pretty interesting. Well, it's safe to say that all were not in an agreement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty safe bet there, Mr. Wade. <laughs> And Steve, this week we have new Patreon support from Lane Tidwell, Jeanette Jordan, and Andy Toombs, and increased support from Kevin Hartley and Wes Bozar. Now, do you recognize the name Lane Tidwell? I do indeed. I believe you two became friends at Darlington. Yes, he is the son of Sean Tidwell, who tweeted me, wanted to know where he could pick up a copy of the Grand National Scene commemorative issue that we did. And we wound up making plans to meet for dinner, met for dinner. And Steve, again, I was so impressed by that young man. And for him to show us his support on Patreon, I think that's pretty cool. And when I put together his package, (laughs) let's just say that Mr. Tidwell is going to get a little bit extra. As he should. Steve, for $5 a month or more in support on Patreon, and they can receive one of the Grand National Scene commemorative issues, plus at least one classic issue of Winston Cup Scene. And also, we have one ball cap left. Just one, huh? Just one. So, $10 a month, and you'll get a Winston Cup Scene cap, two classic issues of Winston Cup Scene, and the commemorative issue that we put together so act now, <laughs> one cap left. Right? One cap left. All right. One cap left. So you can do that, patreon.com slash the same vault podcast. Or if you would prefer a one-time show of support on PayPal, you can do that at paypal.me slash the same vault podcast. I sat for I don't know how long trying to come up with questions that would sound halfway fresh because you've talked about the Daytona 500 of 79 a million times. So for lack of a better way to start, before 1979, what had been your relationship with Kale? We we were very casual friends. I mean, okay. we, we didn't go out. You know, um, Kale was most of the time by himself. You know, David Pierce and I were very, very close friends. Uh, Daryl and I went several times to eat and stuff together. But Kale, I don't ever remember going with him by ourselves. Yeah. We might have went somewhere with a group of us. But I, I never I never had any animosity towards Kale. Um, he has a reputation. He had a reputation at the time of being greedy. Um, and for a better word, I felt like that fit him pretty good. Now, you're talking about on the racetrack. Yeah. So, for the race, you qualify second, but pretty early on, you get turned around by Bobby. What do you remember about that accident? Well, I, 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 see, I didn't know who was right behind. I mean, I knew Bobby was behind me. I don't know who hit because Kale was trying to pass Bobby or whatever. I don't know. 
Um, I just know I got turned around. Well, going down through the infield, I'm trying to keep from tearing my car up any worse than it's getting torn up because I don't want to be out of the race because I got a, I got a good race car. I won't say I was mad at Bobby or Mikhail or anything. I didn't even think about that at that time. Well, strangely enough, Bobby helped me get my car straightened back out afterwards. He was virtually out of it, and, and I kept making pit stops, and he changed the tow changed again and again, you know, and Bobby motion still towed out. And anyway, Benny Parsons was leading the race this time, and I had worked pretty hard to get my, my laps back, two of them. Well, Kale, um, I, I can't tell you when he made his first one up. I know very definitely when he made his second one up. <laughs> yeah. Because he almost wrecked me doing it. And the strange part about that was just before it happened, he made a pit stop, and he was behind me on the restart, and Hoss came on the radio and said, don't worry about Kale. NASCAR says he's at least four laps down. Well, we come back around for the next lap, and Hoss come back on the radio, and he says, uh, he almost wrecked me coming to the caution for that caution, you know. Anyway, come back on the radio, and he said, NASCAR said kills in the same lap. I said, tell me something I don't already know. You don't wreck somebody four laps down. Yeah. So anyway, we had the restart, and, and to be perfectly honest with you, I wasn't concerned about Kale beating me because I, I knew he couldn't beat me or wasn't going to beat me because I wasn't going to get myself in a position to be slingshotted or whatever. But anyway, if I made another mistake, see, I never used to look at the guys in the corner. I don't care who it was. When I was at Daytona, I didn't look up in the corner and see where the guy was. Now, at the end of the straightaway, I'd look up. Uh, coming off the corner, I might look. But that we got the white flag. Uh, five laps to go, I told Hoss on the radio, do not talk to me. I know where I'm at. I know what's going on. Don't talk to me because Hoss would get on there and talk about fried chicken or, <laughs> or whatever it might be. We got the white flag, and for some reason or other, going in turn one, I looked up in the mirror at Kale. And I said, hmm, he ain't coming under me. Now, he can have all the room in the world outside of me, but he's not going to get under me. Yeah. I'm not going to go in turn three outside of him. And so I came down about a half a car width, I guess, or whatever, coming off, and he runs into the back of me. And when he does, it turns me a little bit sideways. Well, I lifted, and when it did, he hit me in the door. And then from that period on, it was yeah. crash. He was, I assume, trying to get control over his car, and I was trying to get control over my car. Now, the only thing I say about this whole thing, if he'd have lifted his right foot off the gas, I could have straightened my car back out. I could have used the wall to straighten my car out. Now, he was out of control all the way because he was coming out of dirt with both back wheels spinning wide open. And, and, and I said, the last thing I said, well, you son of a gun, when we hit up here, we'll both be wide open. Yeah. And that's where, that's where it was when we got to turn three. Uh, now, coming down the back stretch off turn two, that last lap, were you blocking or were no, you? No, I don't okay. know. I okay. wasn't the only okay. thing I consider, if they didn't want to say, I never thought about blocking in my life. Now, they can say what they want to about the guys nowadays. If I would ever run back and forth across in front of a field like 
Chase Elliott did, I would have hoped somebody would have wrecked me. Now, when we came to the corner in Daytona Beach, my, not one time in my mind did the word block ever appear. Now, the only thing I did say, and I say again, I'd say for 100 years, I've done it before. The guy's not getting under me. He can go outside of me, have all the room. We'll never know that because that didn't happen. I mean, yeah. that's my word against his word or what. Yeah. You know, he said I wrecked him. Well, let me tell you something about it. How do you wreck somebody in front? The guy in the back don't lift the throttle, you wreck. And that's a fact. I yeah. mean, that's not blaming him, me, or whoever it is. That's just telling you where it is. And see, when he came out of the infield the second time, not the first time, but the second, when we hit so hard, if I hadn't been there, he probably went through the wall. But we will never know that. And see, when we crashed up there in the corner, we get down the infield, and I know people have a hard time believing this, what I said. But you go back to 1979, and I said the exact same thing I say today. I'm sitting there in the infield, not quite out of the car yet, and I'm saying, I'm not believing this. Here yeah. I am the fourth time I should have won, third time for sure I should have won the Daytona 500, and I'm sitting crashed in the grass. And for a better explanation, I was devastated. I was very, very hurt because here I am sitting there, and I got, I'm not going to win the Daytona 500 again. And this is sitting in the car. On I'm in the car. I'm not out of the yeah. car yet. Well, then Cale got out, and I got out, and we said a few choice words. Well, that was the end of it. Well, here comes Bobby driving up, and Cale turns away from where I'm at. We're, we're probably six foot apart or more, and he starts to Bobby. Well, he walks over to Bobby and hits Bobby. I ran over to him, and I grabbed him by the arm. I spun him around. I said, if you want to fight, yes, OB, I'm the guy you need to be fighting with. What was his beef with Bobby? I've never quite well, understood he, he, that. His thing to Bobby, and I, I, I didn't hear the whole conversation, but he said, Bobby, it's all your fault. You've been blocking all day. Okay. Well, I think yeah. that went back to the previous record, yeah. 29 laps. See, I don't know. I said, the reason why Bobby stopped to help me is he felt bad for me because he spun me for the first time. <laughs> I, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I really don't know about that. But but uh, Bobby wasn't lying when he said he was bleeding because he was. When I grabbed Cale and spun him around, how Bobby got out of that car that fast, I have no idea because he was in the, still in his yeah. radios and shoulder harnesses and everything. And when when he came out, I, I knew what that look was. I've seen it a lot of times <laughs> as kids, and I knew I knew it was going to be hell to pay. Well, K.O. was hit Bobby with his helmet again, and that's when they got a picture of me with my helmet drawn back. I said, I got a damn helmet if you want to fight with a helmet. Never one time in that whole scenario did I touch Kale or he touched me. And I said, 10,000 times since, the good Lord looked out for us twice that day. Once in the wreck and once that he didn't touch me because I'd have killed him. You go to Rockingham the very next week. <laughs> and again... Uh, you and Kale get crossed up, and you wreck on lap six. I mean, so you go from the last lap of the Daytona 500, and you have one crash. You go to lap six at Rockingham, and you crash again. And not only are you and Kale involved, but this one 
collects DW, it collects Richard, it collects Buddy Baker, it collects Neil Bonnet, Ricky Rudd. But almost immediately, the story is you and Kel both are pretty quick to call it just a racing deal. Was that maybe because you had been fined and placed on probation after Daytona? Or was that really the way that you saw it at the well, time? What happened with that deal, Kale was, was leading, my car was faster than him. And I got under him two laps before that. And the, when the wreck happened, I, I was underneath him, but I couldn't get out. I tried to get out of the hole, and, and putting the brakes on as hard as I did made me go up too. So it was a situation that really, I would have been better off if I went on in there and went out and hit sideways. Or what, well, I don't know, because we've never done that now. But that was not a retaliation. Dory deal that yeah. that was a racing accident, and I felt bad because you can look at my history at Rockingham; it's pretty good, and I had a good car, and uh, um, I don't know that that I was any more hacked off at Kale than I was from Daytona, <laughs> but uh, probably I was. You know, I might have said things afterwards, but. Um, like, well, the SOB couldn't stand me under there, so we wrecked. But anyway, it, it, it's 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 a bad situation. Um, Kale and I are as good of friends now as we were before, which I won't say we were best of buddies, but, but we were friendly. We're friendly now. I talk to him. I don't see him very often now, but uh, that's water under the bridge for a long time ago. 40 years this year. Yep. The next year, you and Haas part ways after Atlanta early in the season. In the next week's Grand National scene, you both basically said it was a mutual decision, that it was just time to kind of part ways. What happened? I, I don't know that I can answer that thing, that question, in all truthfulness, because... Um, Hall said a few things, and there was some deals going on with, with Neil and stuff that um, I wasn't too sure about okay. outside of racing. But anyway, uh, for a better description, Hoss Ellington was the greatest owner I think I ever drove for, but he was also the greatest. And... We, we had a couple of disagreements, and I said, well, just could somebody else drive the car then? And, you know, it's really, really weird because we got Pearson driving at Darlington and won the race. Run Pittman called me the day after the race said, you know what? He said, that was your car that won that race. He said, he didn't change nothing over what you run. And, I mean, it made me feel good in one way, but it also made me feel bad, too. Because yeah, I should yeah. have won five of them in a row there. That's two and a half years worth, and then won them. Donnie, 1981, World 600, you get broadsided pretty hard by Dick Brooks, and you wind up with a bruised right lung, a broken left knee, a broken right shoulder blade, several fractured ribs, and a concussion. And that was probably, I guess, as bad as you were ever hurt in the car. What was your first memory after the accident? Getting in an argument with the guy in the pit road about Ronald Donald being on the pits while I'm getting in the car. 
the NASCAR official was trying to run Ronald Donald, my twin boys, off pit road before well, I was getting ready to start the race. And yeah. Now, I got in an argument about parking my truck in the compound, and I remember vaguely that. But the race part, I don't remember any of it. Um, I was coming two laps down, or four laps down, in 200 miles, 200 laps of a 400-lap race. And like I told a lot of people, I didn't do something stupid being that far down. The year before the 600, I parked the car, I could go get the lead in because we couldn't make pit stops. Wow. But, but anyway, it... Uh, um, in the hospital in Charlotte, um, Wizard Brothers come see me. Um, I don't remember anything about that. I don't. I don't have any recollection of that. They put me in the airplane, give me a shot. Bobby's airplane flew me to Birmingham a week later. The thing that I can tell you that I honestly really remember was seeing my kids standing in the hallway was a roaming in the hospital. Then I do remember Kyle Petty, um, Robert Pemberton, uh, and them stopping at the hospital to see me on the way home from Riverside. You came back in 1982 and you drove several races. Did you feel like you were 100% on the racetrack at that point? I don't know. I don't know that I ever thought of that. Um, see, when I went, Dr. Davies was my neurosurgeon in Alabama, and he released me. And well, I was getting ready to run a short track race at BIR, and I was really, really looking forward to that. Well, on Tuesday of that week, I started thinking about that, and I said, well, am I ready to race? I don't want to cause somebody else to get hurt by me not being ready myself to race. So it was Friday, and I called Dr. Davies' office to talk to Dr. Davies, and he had left the office, and the nurse said, is there something I can help with? I said, no, I just want to find out. Uh, he released me to race if I was okay. And she says to me, he wouldn't have released you if you weren't okay. Well, that was a little bit of relief, but not what I really was looking for. But I had an appointment on Monday to go see him. The race got rained out. So I'm sitting there thinking, well, the good Lord works in mysterious ways. On Monday, I told Pat, you're going with me to the doctor's office because I want you, because she, she didn't go well, every time, you know. And so I go, and they, they take me right back in there. They don't let me wait in the waiting room. And anyway, so he comes in there and sticks his hand out, shake hands. I said, whoop, no formalities. I'm here to find something out. He said, what's bothering you? I said, I want to know, am I ready to race? He says, I can't answer that question. He said, you have to answer that question. Your brain is, or I wouldn't have released you. That's okay, now shake hands. <laughs> and so we talked a little bit, and I, I felt quite relieved and when I drove a race car the first time at that racetrack the next week 
When I finished the race, I looked out the windshield and I thought, thank you, Lord, thank you. And I do remember all that. But I had a rough time. Um, I still have a paper towel-sized box full of cards I've never opened. Really? Yeah. I sat on the floor. Pat used to say, why don't you open some cards, get well cards. Okay, so I agreed to. I sat down on the floor, leaned against the couch, had the coffee table in front of me full of cards. And I started reading, and I don't know how many I did, but I cleaned them off. It looked like confetti <laughs> coming down, and I never signed another one, never read another one. Why is that? Every one of them said the same thing. You know, I was hurt. I had to get well. I didn't need people telling me I need to get well and that. You know, I, it was just something that, that that set me off. And, you know, I really appreciate it because I got cards from seven countries. Did you really? Oh, yeah. After 1982, you ran only a handful of cup races after 1982, and you ran several Bush Series events, I believe in 87 or so. Mm-hmm. Was the Bush Series deal maybe a way to maybe scratch your racing itch, or were you trying to get back to the top at that point? Well, see, um, the only opportunity I had to drive a decent cup car was Atlanta when I drove Haas's car. Okay. And they were, that's when they went to the new short wheelbase and all that. And it was you couldn't drive it. And, you know, I, I think probably that hurt me more than helped me because at that time everybody didn't know if I was getting well or if I was well or whatever, and I, I didn't do good in that car. Um and looking back now on, on the situation, you know, I feel like that that didn't do me any good at all. I, I was physically and mentally and everything, I was, to me, I was good. You know, I knew what I needed to do. Uh, and the proof of that is, is you look at the bush race I ran in Daytona when I got crashed right at the end of the race. Um, I ran some pretty good races in bush cars after that, but we were in good cars. And... The driver is not judged by his equipment, he's judged by his finish. And that and that's not fair. After you quit driving, what was your role in the sport? I know that you did the Allison Legacy series with your sons. I think you maybe consulted with several teams. What did you do after that? Well, after I didn't drive cup cars anymore, I still run my late miles. And did did fairly well. Didn't do as good as maybe I would have liked to have done for lack of sponsorship or whatever it might be. Well, then the boys went into car building business, and then they 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 got into uh, we sold the Bush cars to Nemechek that I ran. Okay. And Joe Senior and Joe Junior had a meeting with me, wanted to know what I run the team, so I agreed to it. Well, that's the reason why I'm in North Carolina. Um, the boys had moved up here and started their business, Alice Brothers Race Cars, and they found a building in Salisbury that we rented to run Joe Nemechek's Bush team out of. And I did that that year. He won the Rookie of the Year, but I left before the year was over because we had a little falling out, and he wanted to do things different than I wanted to do yeah. them, and I felt like that, that we were on a good – anyway – we are on a good plan, and uh, so I left him, and then 
Uh, I went to work with TriStar. I helped several cup guys. Well, then the boys started building the legacy car. And I was very fortunate to work with some pretty good young guys. Uh, Regan Smith, uh, Trevor Bain, most notably Joey Logano, Wood, Eddie Wood's son, uh, John Wood. Um, and I enjoyed that, you know, and, and I feel like that all everybody has to have talent to drive, and it's, if you get the right kind of information, you get. Joey Logano is the best example I can give you. I started helping him when he was 12 years old. Now everybody talks about Mark Martin. Now my, I helped him way before Mark Martin ever had anything to do with him at all. And I could see right away that the potential was there. Now, the, before that, with Trevor Bain, his daddy came to me and he said he had a super late model deal for him and he was going to let him run next year. I said, Rocky, let him run with us one more year. He needs to stay with us one more year. No, no. Well, two weeks later, he came to me and said, we're going to run one more year. And he won the championship and then he went on and got the Wizard Brothers car and did it like he did. Well, Joey Logano was different at 13, going on 14. I told his father that Tom, I said, if you want to put him in late model, he can he can handle it. Physically, I don't know if he's strong enough yet, but racing wise, he can handle it. Well, the rest is history. What he did that, and you know, it's weird because I helped several of the young kids, and I was always very honest with their parent. You know, yeah. he has a potential; he'll make it. He won't make it now. The only kid that I ever had that I really felt bad about not getting moved up with my own grandson. Justin Allison is and was every bit of good a race car driver as Joey Logano or anybody else. I never could get him in a cup car. You know, he won a race at Pocono in an ARCA car and a very, very, very subpar race car. And that year he ran nine races and would have won five of them if he'd had a, the right kind of an engine deal. But I mean, it's it, it, sometimes I still do it. Uh, the Allison Legacy Series still runs. Pat runs the whole thing, and uh, the boys are not at the shop all the time now because they had to find something else to support themselves with. And Kenny's got two semi tractor trailers, and he drives one, and Justin drives one. Donald he works at the school system, the transportation department of school. And Ronald, he works at the truck shop and then goes back to their shop at night and does work on legacy cars. Donnie, how are you spending most of your time these days? Well, believe it or not, I don't play any golf anymore. I used to play a lot of golf. I don't play anymore. I went the other day with my grandson and played nine holes. Um, really, that's, uh, that's a fault. I should be going yeah. once or twice a week. Yeah. I can go play any time at the Warrior Golf Club, and and uh, I don't do it. Why well, I don't know. And I go to the shop quite a bit and check on things, and uh, still have a lot to do with with the Legacy Series. And I, I still own a farm in Alabama, and we're getting ready for hunting season again. I really, really enjoy that. In fact, I told Pat and the guys the other day that don't look for me much this winter because I'm gonna be in Alabama at the farm.
Hey listeners, this is Eric Quinn, General Manager of QWare. We are so proud to partner with Rick and Steve and the Scene Vault Podcast in order to bring you these great shows that you're hearing every single week. For over 30 years, The Scene was the only place you needed to go to find the NASCAR content and news that you needed and wanted. The most talented writers, the greatest photographers, and all of sports made The Scene the ultimate source for NASCAR information. At QWare, we've taken that same philosophy and applied it to our online maintenance management system. One source, one solution that provides you with all of the information you need to get the job done. At QWare, we know that every building, every campus, every factory, school, shop, museum, healthcare facility, every office, every building, it it all needs to be maintained. If the information your facilities team needs to keep your building up and running isn't at their fingertips, then you're probably losing time and money. QWare allows your maintenance team to access the important information from anywhere in the world with just a push of a button. As proud as we are to help bring you the Scene Vault podcast, we at QWare are just as proud to provide the most simple to use, inexpensive cloud maintenance solution on the market today. We would be honored to have you look at QWare and see what we can do for your workplace. Now enjoy the rest of this week's podcast, and when you get a minute, check us out at qwarecmms.com forward slash scene. That's qwarecmms.com forward slash scene. QWare is a product of the CNS companies. QWare. Maintain excellence. So, Steve, 1979 Daytona 500 coming down to the last laps. Where are you? Were you in the press box or were you down on pit road? No, I was in the press box. You were in the press box. Oh, man. That must have been just an awesome view. Well, what happened was on that last lap, we all knew what was going to happen on the last lap. Kale was running second to Donnie. Now, they came out of the second turn and down the back stretch is normally where the slingshot pass takes place. And sure enough, Kale moved down to the inside to try to make that pass. But before he could make it, here comes Donnie, also moving down. He was not going to get under. (laughs) And that's when they first collided. And after that, of course, we know they hit two or three more times, slid up the wall in a third turn and back down into grass at third turn. What was the reaction in the press box? My reaction was I was standing up. I was standing up, and I was actually balancing on the desks (laughs) (laughs) in the press box. I didn't want to miss a thing. And after that accident, and those two cars drifted down the third turn uh, grass, I started yelling out, Richard Petty's going to win the race. Richard Petty's going to win the race. And Tom Higgins was standing behind me. He said, to hell with that. I want to see the fist fight. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he called that one, didn't he? (laughs) The next words we heard, and there's a fight in the third turn. And that was Ken Squire. Steve, that brings up the emotions of that moment because Donnie said that when he came to a stop on the apron, he immediately realized that here was another chance at winning the Daytona 500 that had just been shot all to heck because obviously that's a race that's the biggest race in the sport. It's NASCAR's biggest race. And he had said that he had had however many chances to win the Daytona 500, and this was certainly his best chance. Right. He could almost see the checkered flag. And then for this to happen, and regardless of who's at fault, right? here it is, and he winds up in a crumpled heap. You know, Rick, the thing about it is, I have said this repeatedly. All the drivers are highly competitive people. 
If they have the ability to win, that's what they're going to do, win. They all have the will to win, but you have to have the ability. Now, in this particular case, Donnie had the ability to win. And being competitive like that, that's exactly what he wanted. But it was snatched away from him, like he said, regardless of the fault. Nothing, in my opinion, nothing frustrates a driver more to see a victory go away, not through his own fault. And that's the way he felt, especially in the Daytona 500, the biggest race in NASCAR. I was struck a number of times by just how blunt Donnie was in some of the things that he said about the controversies that he'd been involved in, with certainly with Diegard, with the inspection thing at Charlotte, right, right. and with the scoring fiasco in Atlanta. But Steve, he said this week about the 1979 Daytona 500, <laughs> he said the good Lord looked out for him that day because the first time was in the wreck, and the second was that Kale didn't touch him because if Kale had touched him, Donnie said, I would have killed him. Exactly. And Steve, he wasn't smiling. No, I'm sure he, he wasn't. He wasn't kidding. Obviously, he wasn't going to pull a gun out or anything like that. He didn't have access to one. But that's how seriously he took that event. To add to that, their cars had come to a stop in the third turn, and they had gotten out of their cars. And Bobby Allison, who's Donnie's brother, of course, pulled his car, Bud Morse Ford, down to the grass and was at that scene. Now, he said he pulled down there to make sure that his brother was all right. Well, Kelly Yarborough didn't see it that way. When yeah. he saw Bobby yeah. stop there, he said, what in the world are you doing here? And poof, took a poke at him. And Bobby has said many times And since, it was on from there. That's right. <laughs> I had to get out of the car and take care of this. Otherwise, if I don't do this now... I'll be thinking about Kale Yarbrough for the rest of my life. I'll be running away from Kale yeah, Yarbrough exactly for the rest right. of my life. And so yeah. he stepped out, and that started the, the melee, the three of them going at it. It lasted not long at all, but... Well, in NASCAR lore, it was switchblades and billy oh, clubs. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. As we all know, having that fight, briefly as it was, on TV, and that exciting finish on TV because CBS but broadcasting the race flag to flag for the first time. That really got to all the viewers that never seen anything like it. And the ratings for that race climbed up to 13.5. That is millions upon millions yeah. of people watching. And there was a snowstorm on sure. the East Coast that had people inside and watching TV. Right. And <laughs> we mentioned the letters to the editor section when I had my Jeff Gordon column, but Steve, the letters to the editor section... In the subsequent issue of right. Grand National Scene, March 15th, 1979, basically a full month after the race, right. that was the first issue to carry any fan reaction. And Steve, the letters to the editor section began on page two, then jumped to page six. Right. And on page six of this issue, it's six full columns of copy, no pictures, no graphics, no nothing, just letter after letter from ticked off race fans, not necessarily ticked off, but they wanted to express their opinion right. and letters to the editor to grand national scene was basically the only way only that they way. had. That's right. See, we got that many letters and we realized that we just could not contain it in a normal letters to the editor section. So we made plans to expand it. And that's exactly what we did. We'd never gotten any more reactions from a race than we did at that time at the Daytona 500. 
at the time, Grand National Scene came out every other week. It was bi-weekly. So the issue that carried coverage of the race itself was March 1st. That was two weeks after the yeah, event. Yeah, absolutely. And then for the fan reaction to come in, that's the March 15th issue. And so you're talking about almost a full month. And <laughs> some of these letters were pretty, yeah, they, they were something else. Well, you got to realize this is many years before cyberspace and the internet and social media. We were basically the only outlet that race fans could use to voice their opinions about the Daytona 500. George V. Richards of Rayland, Ohio, wrote in and said, the newspaper reports say NASCAR must see the films before they can take disciplinary action. Bull, when a man gets out of his car and hits someone with his helmet in front of thousands of people, what, <laughs> what else do they need to say? They make your point. <laughs> Well, then Fred K. Boschers of Mount Holly, New Jersey, he not only sent a letter to the editor to Grand National Scene, he also sent his note to Area Auto Racing News, National Speed Sport News, Stock Car Racing Magazine, and NASCAR. And Steve, this was before the days of writing it out on a computer. Oh, absolutely. I guess he had carbon copy or something. I hope so, because he did a heck of a lot of writing if he didn't. Lulu E. Hollingsworth of Huntsville, Alabama. I just wanted to include this one because her name was Lulu. <laughs> <laughs> Even though the incident brought racing a lot of publicity, I don't know if it was good for the sport. In my opinion, NASCAR handled the situation badly, and I encourage other fans who feel the same to let the organization in Daytona know it. Now, Steve, that brings up a question. What was NASCAR's reaction to this? Publicly, they had to, you know, kind of fuss at Bobby NASCAR and Donnie. NASCAR was delighted. <laughs> they were delighted. They loved it. They loved it. They even commented on how popular the race broadcast was and how much it put NASCAR into the spotlight. And let's go beyond that. The next race was Rockingham, correct? Yes, Rockingham said their ticket sales soared. Oh, yeah. After that incident. Well, it's funny you say that because I saw a picture on Facebook of a sign that hangs at some short track somewhere. Yeah. It said, if you get into a physical altercation in the garage, we're going to find you 100 bucks. <laughs> if you get into a physical altercation on the front stretch where everybody can see you, we'll pay you a hundred bucks. <laughs> because that's essentially what happened yeah, here. Sure. You Absolutely. Know, you know, NASCAR couldn't say, yeah, they fought and they, you know, we, we don't condone that. But yeah, it sold a lot of tickets. Now, what NASCAR did was to wait a day or two to make a ruling. And what happened was a bunch of us in the press stayed down there Monday morning. Because we anticipated any time that day, NASCAR would make an announcement about uh, what kind of disciplinary measures or punishments they were going to hand out. Now, we went to the NASCAR offices, which at the time were located right there at the track. And we went in upstairs and into the hallway. And there, at Bill Francis' office, sat a guy we all recognized. I don't know if you've seen the picture but there is a famous picture of that fight. And in that picture is a guy with curly hair. Yeah. He's yeah, a track yeah, worker, yeah, right? Yeah. He was sitting outside <laughs> Bill Francis' office, white really? as a sheet. A white as a sheet. Oh, wow. Because obviously he was going to be interrogated by what he saw. And 
We went back to the press box where we had been Sunday. By the way, it was a littered mess. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we waited around that day, waiting for some kind of word from NASCAR as to what the punishments would be. Finally, finally, NASCAR came out, and guess what? They blamed Donnie and fined him $6,000. Mm-hmm. Donnie, who did not make a block. <laughs> yeah. Fine. But that didn't go over very well. It didn't seem fair to be honest with you. But NASCAR did amend that later on, and everybody was put on probation, and Donnie could work off his fine by staying clean on probation. That's pretty much the way it worked out. Steve, I think the last word on the letters to the editor section should be this, and I think it says a lot about what this race meant. Michael W. Patterson of Red Level, Alabama, wrote in and said, my brother-in-law and I went to Daytona for the 500. And when we returned home, we were very surprised to find out that everyone in town was talking about the race. For example, my grandparents are in their 60s and usually eat their Sunday dinner at the dinner table. But that Sunday, they were glued to the television and watched the whole race. That's remarkable, isn't it? And that happened up and down the East Coast for the very first time ever. Right. Now, this was not the first race ever carried live from flag to flag. That was 1971 at Greenville Pickens Speedway right. in South Carolina, but this was the first 500 mile race, certainly the first major right. race, right. and it got a lot of attention. It, it most certainly did. We've mentioned it very briefly, but the very next race at Rockingham, Kale and Donnie get into it again, again, Steve, on just the tenth lap of the race. But this time, it wasn't just Donnie and Kale who were involved, but Richard Petty and Daryl Walter were also among those taken out. So uh, Donnie and Kale were both pretty quick (laughs) to say that it had been just one of those racing deals. Well, they were on probation. Both of them were on probation. Right. And, you know, for them to get into it so quickly, so early at Rockingham, I think there was quite a bit on the line for them. In the March 15th issue... (laughs) <laughs> D.W. is ticked. <laughs> oh, really? He said they didn't just bump. Kel hit him so hard he went over his hood. I just hope somebody saw it as good as I did. It was totally effing stupid. Effing? <laughs> F dot 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 <laughs> I-N-G stupid. Yes, sir, NASCAR needs to do something about this mess. There should be only one driver on probation after today, and it ain't Donnie Allison. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> and then Daryl pointed up to the grandstands. He said, the other ought to be watching up there. He should be learning how to drive. It's just bad, but what's the good of talking about it? They'll just say, that's racing. That ain't racing. That's crazy. Somebody could get hurt. Well, I just wish Daryl would say what he meant. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Daryl, speak out. Well, Stevie Waltrip said in this issue that she had never seen her husband so angry. 1979 is the year that he is leading Richard Petty going into the last race of the year at Ontario by, what, two or three points? Yeah. And has a bad race and winds up losing the championship by... Ten points. Ten points. Ten or eleven points. Yeah. And... How has history changed if Daryl has a good race at Rockingham? Right. Oh, we're talking about his yeah. first championship. Right. Rather than Richard Petty's seventh. Oh, look so, at it that way. Like you said, you involved Daryl losing the championship, 
and then Daryl not being able to beat Richard at Daytona, and then Daryl being involved in this type of incident at Rockingham with the same players at Daytona. Man, it's got to take a guy off. (laughs) Well, Richard Petty said, if they keep driving like that, I'm going to start fighting. Here I am with more than 400 laps to go, and I'm out of the race. It was totally uncalled for. Donnie got underneath Kale back in turn one. He just flat outmaneuvered him. Then Kale kept going lower and lower all the way to the apron with no place to go. It was what I'd call a misjudgment in driving. Well, let's speak. And this is Richard Petty. Yeah. This is Richard Petty that's kind of hot under the hood. There has to be something very serious for Richard to get this way. Well, asked what he thought about what Daryl had said. Kale replied, (laughs) I don't comment about idiots. And Steve, then Kale called Richard Jaws too. <laughs> well, Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> Daryl was Jaws, so he called Richard Jaws too. That's funny. Steve, early the next year in 1980, Donnie and Haas Ellington part ways. And Donnie actually said that Haas was the best car owner he ever drove for, but he, he was also the craziest. What do you remember about Haas? Haas was a character. He loved life. He loved to have fun. And he, he always had a smile on his lips and a, a joke or a tall tale to tell you. No question about that. But Hoss Ellington, uh, shall we say, never walked a straight path when it came to making cars, okay? Yeah. And I don't know if any team only got caught more than Hoss with something in there. But you couldn't help but like the guy. He was just a, just a real out front regular person. Donnie had a very serious accident in the 1981 World 600. Got together with Dick Brooks. We talked a little bit about that last week when we talked about the column that you wrote about Dick. But he said that his first memory after he regained consciousness was a NASCAR official trying to run Donnie's twin sons, Ronald and Donald, off pit road before the start of the race. I knew there was something about Donnie Allison that I liked and that I trusted. I know what you're going to say. He's got twin sons. <laughs> well, who else has twin sons? You know, you're playing in the major leagues when you have more than one kid at a time. You know, having one baby at a time, that's strictly for amateurs. <laughs> but Steve, he also said that he has to this day a box full of cards that he received after that accident. He's never read them. And he said that he didn't need to be reminded that he'd been hurt and that he needed to get well. That is the reaction of a racer. Yeah, I think so, too. Who really, really wanted to race. Right. One last thing about Donnie Allison. Donnie is still involved in the Allison Legacy Series. That's a car that's maybe a three-quarter scale cup car. Here's our bet for our playoff contest. Uh Uh-oh. We go to Donnie, maybe get access to a couple of those cars, and we'll have our own race, me and you, match race. What do you say? Well, by that time, I've already beaten you in this contest, so what do I want to get you for? I don't want to do that again. Follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Steve, this week we are talking in the second segment about Mark Martin. We're talking about Jeff Gordon. We're talking about Rusty Wallace. And Brian Kelb can certainly hook fans of those drivers up. I'm sure he can. No a doubt. number of different items from his inventory. Absolutely. So follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens 
and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Steve, the May 15th, 1997 issue of Winston Cup scene carried coverage of the spring race at Talladega that year. Mark Martin started 18th, and he finished first in a race that went flag to flag without a caution. Flag to flag without a caution. At Talladega, Talladega, Mark averaged 188.354 miles an hour and broke the record that Bill Elliott had held since May of 1985. And that was the legendary race where he made up almost two laps under under green. Under green. Yeah. And he averaged in winning that race 186.288 miles an hour. That race had just two cautions for just eight laps. And that record still stands today. That is the fastest NASCAR race ever held. Now, it wasn't the fastest 500-mile race in motorsports at that time. Al Unser Jr., had won a cart race in 1990 at 189.727 miles an hour. So this was Mark's second straight win because he had also won at Sears Point the race before. He would go on to win two more races and have four wins that season. He was second in points for most of the year until the last two events where he fell third. And he finished third place in the points that year behind Jeff Gordon, who was first, and Jeff was only 14 points ahead of Dale Jarrett and 29 points ahead of Mark Martin. A lot of us don't remember that, but that's really one of the closest championship battles of NASCAR. Here's something else that I had forgotten until I picked up this issue. This race had originally been scheduled for two weeks earlier, but rain had forced a postponement. Right. And Deb Williams wrote a awesome column, and she, <laughs> she packs a lot of detail into everything that she wrote, and that was certainly the case in this column. Christian Lovendahl, who is a crew member for Mike Skinner's team, he went ahead and got married the day of the rescheduled race, but the friends that he had in the sport who were either planning to attend or actually in the wedding, they couldn't be there. (laughs) Didn't get a big turnout. (laughs) Well, the other racing-related marriage that happened that day, Wendy Mullinax and Felix Burns were a couple of fans They weren't involved in racing, but they had planned to get married at a church across the street from the racetrack. The ceremony was supposed to start (laughs) at 6 p.m. about the time time that 100,000 fans or so are going to be leaving the racetrack. (laughs) Now, can you imagine that mess? Oh, man. (laughs) I wonder how many uninvited guests that they would (laughs) have... How many cars are parked on the church lot? In varying states of, I don't know, intoxication. Well, that'll work. (laughs) So what they did instead, they moved their wedding to the day before the race. Track president Grant Lynch got involved, and Talladega actually helped them print up new invitations with the rescheduled date and also helped them mail them. Which I thought was pretty cool. Oh, yeah, what? And this is the biggie. They even helped in rescheduling a wedding photographer. Now, that's going the extra mile going, for old Grant oh, Lynch. That's going <laughs> way beyond the call of duty. Well, also, Ned Jarrett received an honorary doctorate from Lenore Ryan College in Hickory, his hometown, during the school's graduation ceremonies. That began at 10 a.m. the day of the race. He hopped on a plane, <laughs> landed at Talladega, got to the track in time to make the ESPN booth, For one reason. For one reason. Yeah. 
because of the time difference. Right. North Carolina is the eastern time zone, right. and Talladega is in the central time zone. But you got to say that this proved that Ned could be just as fast off the track as he was on the track. Steve, this issue also included a feature story on who would have been the greatest driver in the final 10-lap segment of the Winston All-Star Race. That was an interesting piece. Yeah, and the was. results were interesting. Dale Earnhardt and Curtis Turner each received 12 votes, and Kale Yarborough received 10, 10 votes. votes. Listen to this panel of experts. Donnie Allison, Buddy Baker, Tim Brewer, Richard Childress, Junie Don Levy, Tim Flock, Tom Higgins, Dell Inman, Dell Jarrett, Ned Jarrett, Bob Latford, Bob Latford, Steve, uh, yeah. <laughs> Dave Marcus, Bob Moore, Bud Moore, Cotton Owens, Buddy Parrott, Benny Parsons, Kyle Petty, Richard Petty, Humpy Wheeler, Leonard Wood, Kel Yarbrough, Robert Yates, and Smokey Eunuch. You left somebody out. And some other guy <laughs> <laughs> by the name of Steve Wade. So who did you vote oh, for? Dale. I voted okay. for Dale. I voted for Kale second. I would not seen Curtis race, so I could not really uh, support any vote for him. But those two guys I had seen, they, both of them absolute lead foots. Now, you can't expect to throw me a pitch that easy and not expect me to at least attempt to swing at it. Well, go ahead. Saying that you never got to see Curtis Turner race. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, this issue also included a photo bio on Jay Fry, who was the general manager for MB2 Motorsports and driver Derek Cope. Well, I guess what he is today. Now, what's Jay Fry up to these days? The president of IndyCar. <laughs> he is the president of IndyCar. And, of course, his wife, Danielle Fry. Right. Used to be an intern at scene. Yes, she did. And she actually wrote a few stories for us. Absolutely. And she worked for MRN. And NASCAR. So, Steve, that was what made up most of the issue. <laughs> You're not done yet, Rick. <laughs> well, you're not done yet. The letters to the editor section included responses to a column that I'd written in the May 1st issue of Winston Cup Scene, and this took up more than a full page of copy. Just like the 1979 Daytona 500. Now, the print wasn't quite as small for this issue, but it was still packed. You set them up, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what I said in that column. Here's the real deal. A true, real race car driver would put a fender to his own grandmother in the final turns of the last lap at Bristol if it meant winning the race. Going into turn three on the last lap at Bristol, it was time to ring the bell. This has nothing to do with being for to Gordon, against Gordon, or not giving a flying flip either way about Gordon. He knew what he had to do to win, and he did it. Well done, Jeff. What he did at the time was typical at Bristol. You had to root a guy out of the way to get around him. And fans loved that. They even said they loved that. But they didn't. Well, really some of the fans it. loved I it. I was going to say, they didn't all like what you wrote. Some of the responses in this issue Tom Horn of Sunny Valley, Oregon. Rick Houston's article on Jeff Gordon's victory was right on. A pity pat between friends at Bristol <laughs> is no big deal. Oh, okay. <laughs> And Julie McCulloch of Norwich, New York, said, your column on Jeff Gordon's win at Bristol was as welcome as a breeze on a sweltering summer day. Kind of makes a guy feel good, Oh, wow, that was pretty cool. Now, Steve, on the flip side. Aha. <laughs> on the flip side of that coin included responses from people like Jeff Krupica of Lincoln, Nebraska, 
I'm writing in response to Rick Houston's article on Jeff Gordon's move on Rusty Wallace that resulted in his winning the Food City 500. Whatever. (laughs) We all know who the real winner of the race was. Congratulations, Rusty, on a clean race. You deserve the win. Well, Rusty. Well, Jeff. (laughs) Well, Jeff, he didn't get the trophy there, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) And Rusty's not clean nosed when it comes to racing either. Jeff Patton of Hueysville, Kentucky said, Your story on Jeff Gordon's win at Bristol was a joke. That's getting right to the point. (laughs) And Steve, uh, those are just the letters that were printed. (laughs) Well, tell us about one that didn't get printed. Okay. All right. I got one letter that began, Dear Fat Ass. <laughs> I like that one. Did you write it? No. <laughs> I knew immediately. I sussed it out. I, just something told me that the rest of that letter was not going to be real complimentary. <laughs> Do you think? <laughs> and there were others who kind of hinted that I only wrote the column because Jeff and I were... uh <laughs> Go ahead. Friends with benefits. (laughs) And, you know, Steve, even then, even then, it amazed me the lengths to which some fans will go in expressing their opinions. Still doing it to this day. Still doing it to this day. Hi, race fans. I'm Dave Marcus, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Okay, Steve, no kidding around about our picks at Dover. I ain't going to try to pull the wool over your eyes. I'm just going to tell it like it was. Your driver, Martin Truex Jr., finished second, and he led once for 15 laps. That's 57 points. You had a good day. Yeah. You had a good day points-wise. I picked Kevin Harvick, and he didn't have a bad day. He finished in fourth place, but he never quite found the front of the field, and he never led. In the current point system, you now have a 25-point lead, and in the Winston Cup slash Bob Bladford system, you're up 48 points. I'm starting to leave you in the dust. No. (laughs) All it takes. All it takes is one big day or one bad day, whichever the case may be. Next up is Talladega. Right. Now, this one, how you pick somebody to win at Talladega? Come on. I'm glad you asked that. I have a proposition for you. Uh Uh-oh. What's that? Because Talladega is such a crapshoot. Yeah. And there's no way to accurately predict a winner. Well, why don't we do this? Why don't we pick names out of a hat in honor of Bob Moore's press box pool? Believe it or not, I came prepared. Oh, did you? Here's the hat. Ah, a scene cap, by the way. The last one. And here are the names. All right. All 16 there. drivers who are still involved in the playoffs. All right. Okay. Now get get in there and mix them up real good. I did it. Okay. All right. Shaking them up. Shaking them up. All right. You may choose first since you're... <clears throat> trailing. <laughs> I don't know about this. All right, here we go. My selection for Talladega is going to be <laughs> Martin Truex Jr. Martin Truex Jr. This thing is rigged. <laughs> uh, okay. okay, all right, let me have the cap. Okay, all right. My turn. And my pick is Kevin Harvick. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Chase Elliott. I'll take you. Chase really? Elliott. Yeah. 
So I have Martin Truex Jr. You have Chase Elliott. Chase Elliott is going to lead every lap. <laughs> Come on, Chase. <laughs> Elliott is a big name at Talladega. Martin Truex Jr., come on, man. It's your due. Your due, man. 